0: Now today we're going to be teaching you something that I learned from uh, a missionary his name is David Platt and this is so amazing, and it impacted me so dramatically that I wanted to present it to you as accurately as possible as it was explained to me. And I want you to hold on tight this morning, because what we are talking about today impacts so much in your life. Now, as you think about God, and as I think about God, we like to think about God as our loving Father. And yes, Absolutely, God is a loving Father. And that is a wonderful view that God gives us in order to understand Him more. God is a loving Heavenly Father. Now, He also tells us in His Word that God is our friend. And now that, for me personally... That is my favorite view of God. God is my friend. And when I think of the creator of all the universe and every single thing that's ever been created is him and that he, that God, that creator, desires to be my friend, it just blows me away. And I absolutely love that view of God. And I like to think, personally, I'll just let you know, I like to think of that view of God the most. But here's the problem. Limiting our view, your view and my view of God as God the loving Father and limiting it, even if we add to it, God our friend, those two views, if if that's what we limit our view of God to, then we are distorting our picture of God. If we only focus on God the Father and God the friend, then we have a warped view of who God really is. Because in the scripture, God reminds us that yes, he's God, the loving father. And yes, he's God who wants to be your friend. But God is equally the wrathful judge. A judge who hates sin. In Habakkuk 1 verse 13, the Bible tells us this. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing now this is a problem because last week we said that Adam because of him sin actually lives inside of us and if God is too pure to look on evil and he cannot tolerate wrongdoing and I am full of evil and wrongdoing then I have a problem and it's even a deeper problem because I bet, I bet you've never heard what I'm going to say before. You see, in some sense, not only does God hate sins, but in some sense, God even hates sinners. The Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence, for you, God, is speaking of God, you hate all who do evil. How many of us, uh, you don't have to raise your hand this morning, but how many of us do evil? And we know it's every single one of us. On some level... God not only hates sin, but God hates the sinner. And I know this is mind-blowing. And yes, God is the loving Father, and He wants to be your friend. But He is equally the wrathful judge. This verse is not in the Bible by mistake. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me, because this verse that I just read cannot stand on its own. There's really no verse in the Bible that does stand on its own. But this is not in there by mistake. And most clearly, on some level, God deals with sin very, very, very seriously. And this is a part of God that we like to ignore. We find more of that in the first 15 psalms in the Bible. We find more of that in the Gospel of John. But we want to and we choose to focus on God who loves rather than the God who judges and the God who sentences. Because if God is a judge, I believe that most of us, myself included, are afraid of what that might require from me. Because if God is judge, it demands a greater all. If God is judge, it demands more worship than I am ready to give him so many times. And the truth is, the truth is our hearts are not seeking God with everything inside of us. Instead, the Bible tells us actually that our hearts are set against God. So if this is all true, then who am I? Who is this Harley? And who are you really? And the Bible would tell us. It tells us. We talked about this last week. The Bible says we're an enemy of God. You see, we know God's way, but we choose to do what we want anyway. So if this is all true, then who am I really? Who are you really? And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 11, I don't have it on the screen for you, but it tells us that I act clean on the outside. And the Luke, Luke chapter 11 tells me that I am dirty and greedy and evil on the inside. You see, anyone who is not fully, completely on God's side, the Bible describes as an enemy of God. And we say, but, but not me. I, I mean, I'm on God's side. I love God. I, I always have loved God. But the reality is, oh, it tells us so much, so much different. You see, we love a God that we have created in our own minds, but the God of the Bible we hate. In our evil, we openly rebel against God and His ways and what He says. We disobey what He has written in His Word and what the New Testament tells us He has written in our very hearts. We disobey. You know, God is powerful. And God commands all of His creation. He says it. It happens. The weather It obeys God. God commands all of nature, and nature obeys God every single time. Laws of physics and laws of science, all created by God, and they obey God. God can suspend them. They listen to God. He commands them every single time. The only part of God's creation that does not obey God is us. We're the only part that does not submit to God fully. You see, we have the audacity to stand before God our Creator and say to Him, no." God describes us, I believe, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18. it'll be on the screen. I'm going to to move partway into the verse. It says, Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. Now, how often is that me? How often is that verse you the Bible would describe us so many times as being blinded. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded their minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of God's good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Who are we really? Romans chapter 3 verse 9 helps us answer that question. I'm going to move partway into this verse. I'm going to start with the word all where it says all people right there in the middle. All People, Whether Jews or Gentiles are under the power of sin. That describes me. Now look at verse 10. As scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. How do we describe ourselves as pretty good? How does God see us? No one is righteous. That's including your pastor. No one of us is righteous, not even one. Now, Paul told us last week, he said, you're you're an enemy of God. That's what he said. You were enemies of God. He said, we are separated from God. We're separated from him. And because of that, we are subject to the wrath of God. And there is nothing that we can do about that because we have sin we're enemies of God we're separated from God and we are subject to God's wrath who God the God that hates sin and we are subject to his wrath because we've sinned you know Paul goes on to describe that we are also slaves of sin we're going to talk more about that in some weeks to come Paul says we are we are captive held captive by evil You see, no one that is a slave can set themselves free. They just can't do it. No blind man can make himself see. It can't happen. No dead man can cause himself to rise up out of the grave and walk again and live again. No, no, that can't happen. No one likes the way that they look as they read the gospel. Because the gospel makes us look at ourselves the way we really are. As sinners. So we ignore that gospel, and instead, in America, we have a tendency to focus instead on self improvement. Because we can convince ourselves that God is actually there to make my life better and to improve me. So we choose to believe this. We choose to believe that we just need to take a certain step, follow a certain order, make a, follow a certain plan, check off certain boxes. We diagnose ourselves and we work then to fix ourselves while giving God an hour on Sunday to do the best that He can with that hour. All of this works so nicely and so neatly in a self-centered, self-governed, self-righteous American world that we live in. You see, most Americans already believe that individually we are mostly good. We're mostly good and we do occasionally some bad things, but overall we're pretty good. So all we need to do is to add some kind of superstitious prayer or something that will connect us with God and maybe increase our church attendance, maybe obey a few verses out of the Bible, just the ones that we really like and that we think we'll be able to do, and then we are good to go. That's the way we feel in America. And this adds up to what we can call a modern gospel, or a better word is a false gospel. Gospel. It is not the real deal. So let's contrast the modern false gospel that we hear so frequently in America with the actual real deal gospel. That's what we're going to do this morning. You see, the modern gospel says God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. If you'll follow these steps, you can be saved. That's the modern gospel. That's what we have taught. Many of you have heard this your whole life. But do you know what the real gospel says? The real gospel says that you're an enemy of God and you and I are dead in our sin. And in our current state of rebellion, we can't even sense the need for a new life, much less begin to create it because we are blinded by thinking we're pretty good and we just need to do a little better. In our current state of rebellion, the reality is this, we can't even see that we are dependent upon God to do something for us that we cannot do. After all, we have done so much and accomplished so much. You see, the modern gospel, the false gospel, it is so popular. I mean, it'll sell a book. And it'll get you a lot of likes on Facebook. And and it'll get people to listen to you on TV. And it will keep you in a self-improvement plan. But the real gospel is the one that saves souls and connects them to Jesus eternally. You see... The Bible describes that there is absolutely not one single thing that I, that you can do for salvation. We cannot manufacture it. We can't even do anything, get this. We can't even do anything to get it started. The Bible says that God has to open our eyes so that we can see the need. And God has to set us free. And God must overcome the evil inside of us. And only God can appease His wrath. We cannot do any of it. So, He has come to us. If you're beginning to understand this, then you are getting closer to the beauty, the absolute beauty of the real gospel. So what do we need to do? Or better yet, who do we need? You see, maybe you're doing the best that you can. And maybe you are working to feel closer to God. And maybe you believe, like most Americans, that there are many paths... And I'll tell you the truth, there are many paths. Absolutely, there are many, many paths. But they never get there. Not a single one. None of those paths get to God. There is not one path initiated by me or initiated by you that will get us to God. That's what the Bible says. So because of that, God actually came down to get us. God came to us. Now please, understand what I'm saying, because as long as we continue to think that if we check off the right boxes, if we repeat the correct superstitious type prayer to get to God then we are joining all the other religions of the world and we are trying to do the same thing they're trying to do. We're trying to appease an angry God. And they're doing all they can to earn Him, to make Him happy. But when you realize that we are sinful, moral failures that evil actually lives inside of me and you, and we can't stop that from happening, then we're getting closer to the real gospel. I want you to listen very carefully to the next statement. I want you to think about this statement very slowly. If we only see God as friend and God as the Father who loves them, we see the mission of Christ as a loving act alone. The cross then is an act of love so that sinful man will know how much God loves us. And yes, do not misunderstand me, God does love us, but if you hold on to that picture alone, it is inadequate, and you're missing the whole point of the gospel. You see, we're not saved from our sins because Jesus was betrayed and falsely arrested, We are not saved because the Roman soldiers beat Jesus to an unrecognizable state. We are not saved because Jesus had nails driven into his feet and his hands. He did that. But that is not what paid the debt for the sins of the world. Now, picture this in your mind. Jesus Christ in the garden right before he's arrested. He's face down. The Bible says he is in agony and he's praying. And literally sweat, drops of blood are dripping from his head. Now, he was not in agony because of the pain and the death that was to come. You see, many people Many people have died for their faith in God because of Jesus Christ. Many people have died and faced horrible deaths as Jesus did. Many people have died. July 29th of this year, just a few weeks ago, a pastor in India was ripped from his home. His wife and his four kids ripped away from them. He was taken outside, beaten, and his throat was slit, and he was left in the bushes with a note. This year, a pastor of three churches in China that's near the North Korean border, he was captured by North Koreans, and they chopped up his head with an axe this year. After multiple attacks for another family over the course of several years, a young husband and a father of three who allowed another pastor to come in and use their home for a church of about 72 people, he was awakened in the night by a mob of 200 people who drug him out of his house and through the woods and to a camp. The man's wife and mother and sister followed him, pleading for his life. At the camp, they tied him to a post. And in front of his wife and his mother and his sister, they beat him until flesh was hanging from his bone. And then they stabbed him in the heart with a Hindu symbolic spear. Now these men who stood in the face of death, what seems like so strongly. Now compare these men with Jesus. Jesus, who we find in the garden before His arrest, weeping and crying and dripping sweat drops of blood. The stress was so great. Why do these other men seem so strong in that moment of death and Jesus seem to be shaking in mental agony in the garden? And I'll tell you why. You see, Jesus was not a martyr who was merely suffering torture and death at the hands of these mere men. His creation, by the way. No. Jesus is a Savior. Taking upon himself the terrible, hideous wrath of God. You see, Jesus was not fearing the torture and the death. He was crying and sweating drops of blood as he looked toward the wrath of God that was coming his way, because God hates sin. And he is a judge who will sentence. And Jesus saw that coming his way. The cup that he prayed for when he was on his knees in the garden as he said, let this cup be taken away from me. It was not a cup of suffering. No, it was so much more than that. It was a cup of divine judgment. It was the full and the complete wrath of God for every single sin that had been committed and that would be committed on His earth. That is why Jesus was trembling. All of God's holy and just wrath unloaded upon Jesus. All of God's hatred toward sin. And yes, even the sinner in that moment unloaded upon Jesus. God's hatred toward rebellion. It was about to be poured out on Jesus. You see, the real gospel is not about nails and not about torture. But it is about God's wrath for my sin. Your Sin, And in that moment, all of God's wrath, all that I deserved, you and the whole world deserved, came rushing down like a broken dam onto the life and body of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, for the first time, God turned his back on Christ, on Jesus, on God himself. He could not stand to see Jesus defiled by the sins of the world. And at the cross, Jesus drank the full cup of wrath of God. And when he had drained the cup, emptied the cup into himself, only when he drank the last drop of God's wrath, Jesus cried out, it is finished. This Is the gospel. The loving. And the just creator. Of the universe. Has looked hopelessly. Sinful people. In the eyes. And then he sent himself. God in the flesh. To bear his wrath. Against sin on the cross. And to show his. Power over sin through the resurrection of Jesus. All of that in order so that all who trust in Him will be reconciled to God forever. So, how do we respond? to this gospel. It seems to me that those little statements that we grew up with don't seem to be a proper response. We have said, ask Jesus to come into your heart. We have said, invite Jesus to come into your life. You have heard people say, pray this prayer. Or maybe attend this class. Or walk this church aisle and fill out this card. And you simply can even just raise your hand and accept Jesus. Accept. Accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Will you accept Him? You see, we can't warp the Gospel to fit into some kind of impressive or slick presentation that's simple and no cost. To the believer. Or maybe just simply cram it all into a pre-programmed prayer. Asking somebody to repeat potentially meaningless words. Many of these things we grew up with. Are no longer seeming appropriate. As a response to the real gospel. Do you realize that none, absolutely none of these man made phrases are actually even in the Bible? None of them. There's not a verse in Scripture where somebody is told to bow their heads, close their eyes, and repeat after me. There's not one. There's not a place even where a potentially superstitious prayer is even mentioned. Not once. There is no emphasis in the New Testament on accepting Jesus. We have taken the eternally glorious Jesus who endured the unimaginable anger of God, who now reigns as the Almighty, who is the worthy Lord of all, and we have reduced Him to a puny, poor, weak Savior who is just begging on people, please accept Me. Accept Him? Do we really believe that Jesus needs our acceptance, our approval... That is so backwards. So backwards. And that's the way that it is presented in America. But isn't the reality that we need Him? Don't we need Him? What is a proper response to the Gospel? The genuine, real Gospel of the Bible? What is the proper response? Surely, surely it is more more involved than just saying a prayer. Surely, there is more than just attending. Surely, there's more to following Jesus. Jesus. Surely the gospel of the Bible demands unconditional giving up of all that I am and all that I have to all that God is. Unconditional, not saying, God, you can have my Sunday mornings. God, you can have more of me when I need more of you. And when I need your help, you'll get more of me when I need more of you. No. No, unconditional. God, I give you this life. I'm holding nothing back for myself. I believe in so many instances in America, we need to determine desperately, do we need to determine what we have actually believed about God? What has our response to God actually been? You know, at the end of the most famous sermon that was ever taught, Jesus ends it with this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is chilling. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Your name. Didn't we do many miracles in your name? Verse 23. Jesus speaking here then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Jesus here is not speaking to God-haters. Jesus here is not speaking to people who were openly rebellious. He's not speaking to pagans. Jesus is talking to devoutly religious people and some of them had fooled themselves into thinking that they were on the narrow path to heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Some of you who think you're on the narrow path, you're actually on the broad road leading to hell and eternal separation from God. And according to Jesus, not just a few people will discover one day that it's too late. Not just a handful, he said, but many will be eternally stunned to find that they are not in God's kingdom after all. After all of the religious work that they did after all. You see, I believe the danger of spiritual deception with a false gospel is very real in this America, the United States of America. Churches are leading the way with a false gospel that shrinks God down into a weakling, just begging, just looking for someone to simply accept him. And that is false. It makes gigantic promises at absolutely no cost. We've been told in America that all that is required is a simple, casual decision. All you have to do is be persuaded into simply giving mental agreement that Jesus is Jesus. And after you do that, you don't have to worry about him or his commands or his standard or his glory. Because after all, we have our ticket now into heaven. And we can rest easy and simply do what we want to do and live however we want to live. Because now our sin, according to God's agreement, must be tolerated by God as we live absolutely any way we choose. Because that is the American gospel. And no wonder that crowds flock to that fire insurance that costs nothing but promises everything. You see, the real gospel calls for, demands a much different response. A response from us that leads us to choose a much different path, a smaller path, A smaller road. And God tells us that it will not be a crowded road. All are invited, but few will choose it. You see, the gospel is all about death, it's not free. There's a cost to you, and there's a cost to me. And the cost is death taking up your cross and death to yourself. If you want to follow Jesus, these are the terms. These are the phrases we actually do see in Scripture. We don't find accept Jesus in the Bible, no. But we do find take up your cross. Nowhere in the Scripture do we hear this, repeat this prayer after me. But we easily find this, die to yourself. Not in one single place will you read the words, walk down this aisle. But throughout the Bible, you will find God saying, walk the way I walk. Follow me, Jesus says. Not check this box, no. You'll be told instead to turn from your sins. Stop going the same direction. Turn around. Run away from those sins. You see, the real gospel demands us to turn. Turn away from pursuing sin and our way. It demands us to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, and to actually follow, yes, follow, follow Jesus. Not just on Sunday mornings, but every day, moment by moment. These are the terms and phrases that we actually see in the Bible. When we see the gospel in God's Word, in the Scriptures, we must be disturbed deep inside. Disturbed with ourselves. With our sinfulness, our desires, our dirtiness, our thoughts, our selfishness, our actions, the depravity of our own hearts, we must be disturbed, we must be in a desperate state. A state that says, I need mercy, I need the grace of God, who is completely holy and righteous as judge, as much as He is loving Father. Jesus is not one to be accepted in or invited in, but one who demands immediate and total surrender. As World War II ended, Japan had to surrender. It was an unconditional surrender. They did not get to negotiate their terms and say, this is what we'll do. I'm not going to do this, but we'll do this. We'll give up some things, do a few things differently, but we're going to keep these things. I'm going to keep our army and our navy. We're going to keep the Air Force. We'll be nicer, but we're going to do things. Our- no, it was a domination. They completely, totally, unconditionally surrendered. And that's what it is for us. The reality. The response to the Gospel is surrender. We're not demanding our way. We lost. God, You won for us. And that is what surrendering to Jesus is. And that is what the real gospel demands unconditional surrender to Jesus. Now, listen closely. We are not talking about earning your way to God through a deep-seated obedience, nor keeping your place with God through extreme obedience. That's not what we're talking about, because that is impossible. We are saved, the Bible tells us, by grace through faith alone. It is a complete gift of God and not any part of it, not one single part is your work or my work because no one will have the ability to claim any part of it for themselves. We are saved by God's sacrificial work alone. That is it. And it is something that only he, that only God can do inside of us. It is not something I can improve upon or add to or shore up with some good action. But that gift of grace involves a gift of a new heart from Him into me. New longings begin to form and new desires make their way to the surface. We respond to His free gift by surrender, we respond by seeking after Him daily, we respond to His gift by longing to be with Him daily. We're not saved for a future one day in heaven. But we are saved to be with Him right now in your soul every day, living our lives with Him all day long, day after day. The proper response to the gospel is that we long to be near Him So much that we abandon everything else that we have experienced in life so that we can pursue Him. This is the proper response to the revelation of God in His Gospel. This is the very reason why in other parts of the world, people risk their lives just to meet together to pray. They risk death and they risk mutilation because they are driven to know Jesus more every single day even if it means being tortured and beheaded for doing it. And that is why we must avoid living this cheap, no cost, imitation Christianity. It fails to lift high our holy God and our just God and His words of life. This is why we can't settle for anything less than a God-centered faith. Not a me-centered. Not a self-improvement-centered. God-centered. A Christ-exalting faith. Not a genie in the bottle who is ready to make my life easier, more prosperous, who's there to solve my next problem when I ask. No. It's a self-denying faith, not a cheap and inexpensive plastic gospel. And I ask this, God, would you give us an insatiable desire to follow you, to listen to you, to pursue you? And I pray this for Stuttgart Harvest Church. I pray for this for the churches across America. I pray this because we have replaced a true, genuine, real gospel with an American, cheap imitation, mass-produced, cheap, no-count gospel God, give us a hunger for You. May we respond to all of this with complete surrender. Saying, this life has been purchased by You. God, it was mine. And it is now Yours. I belong to You. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we sing these two songs, may our hearts resound with the wonders of the cross where Jesus took on the wrath of God for our sin. Oh, how wonderful it was. And may our response to you be Jesus, you and what you did on the cross for me demands my life, my all. And it is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.